Welcome to CNN Tonight. I'm Jake Tapper in Washington. And tonight we want to lay out some new alarming details about Russia's brutal war against the Ukrainian people. We're going to start with new warning signs of the Kremlin considering the use of a tactical nuclear weapon. Now, U.S. intelligence believes that senior Russian generals have discussed how and when to deploy one. This classified report was described to CNN by multiple sources who have read it. There is debate on on how seriously to take this intelligence. Is it further sign of Russian desperation and cause for real concern? Or are these discussions being taken out of context? On CNN earlier tonight, top White House national security official John Kirby reacted to the latest U.S. intelligence report. There's uh, lots of levels of concern, of heightened concern about what's going on uh, in Ukraine right now that gives us uh, uh, cause to continue to closely monitor as best we can uh, Russia's nuclear capabilities. Now, the intelligence report says that Vladimir Putin was not part of these talks, but Putin has publicly dangled the prospect of using a nuclear device for months. Today, Russia's Ministry of Foreign Affairs put out a statement, perhaps to try to ease fears that it remains Kremlin policy to only use nuclear arms in a defensive response, declaring, quote, that a nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. Also today, Putin announced he will once again abide by a deal to allow vital grain exports from Ukraine safe passage in the Black Sea, which would be a welcome reversal to those who fear a global hunger, hunger crisis. Ukraine and Russia account for nearly a third of the world's wheat exports. Here's the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations on CNN this morning. Clearly, Russia was uh, finally convinced that they needed to continue this. They can't stand in the way of feeding uh, the entire world. But Putin is also threatening to pull out of that deal, again, if he feels Ukraine uses access to the Black Sea for any military purposes. Now, these announcements would be welcome if you take the Kremlin at its word. But we have all witnessed so many moments where the Kremlin says one thing and then does the exact opposite, whether insisting they would never invade Ukraine or they will allow safe passage for refugees and won't harm them at all or promising to allow weed exports and then going back on that pledge. So while we all hope today's proclamations prove accurate, we're not confident that will be the case. What we are confident about is the continued Russian atrocities we're seeing on the ground in Ukraine. Tonight's CNN's Clarissa Ward is going to bring you new evidence of these horrors as she follows investigators who are tasked with looking for cases of rape and other sexual violence inside of Kherson, a region recently freed from Russian occupation. It sadly reinforces what an independent United Nations investigation team found. Rape and torture. Sometimes the victims were children, some as young as four. And at times, families of the victims were forced to watch. The head of a human rights organization, which this year shared the Nobel Peace Prize, warns that many of these crimes will surely go unpunished. No accountability. But here in the U.S., the Justice Department created a new division in June to investigate these Russian atrocities, these war crimes. And there's now a bipartisan push to change U.S. laws so that it will be easier to prosecute Russians for these horrific deeds in U.S. courts should these Russians ever enter the United States. Now, it's hard to believe, but there are some in Russia who actually argue that Putin has not been brutal enough. And we want to shine a light tonight on a mercenary army that is emerging from the shadows. Let me introduce you to Yevgeny Prigozhin. 
Prigozhin is a Russian oligarch best known as Putin's chef, and for good reason. His restaurants and catering company have literally hosted dinners attended by Putin and other world leaders, including then-President George W. Bush. But Prigozhin is also known for serving up bodies. Just a few weeks ago, Prigozhin admitted to founding the Wagner Group in 2014. You might have heard whispers about Wagner. It used to be a private mercenary group that operated entirely in the shadows. But in recent years, CNN has tracked Wagner operatives in Ukraine, Libya, Sudan, Mozambique, Mali, and Syria. Clarissa gained access to a Wagner training base in the Central African Republic. For Russia, this is a straightforward bargain. They provide the weapons and the training, and in return, they get access to the country's natural resources. And in the process, hope to reassert themselves as a major player in this region. The Wagner Group has a gruesome reputation and is linked to any number of human rights abuses, including tortures and beheadings. Top U.S. officials have consistently warned about the Wagner Group's brutal tactics. Poor governance, exclusion, and corruption inherent in weak democracies makes them more vulnerable to extremist movements as well as to foreign interference. That includes the Kremlin-backed Wagner Group, which exploits instability to pillage resources and commit abuses with impunity. Now, Russia's war on Ukraine has thrust Prigozhin and Wagner into the spotlight. Ukrainian officials estimate at least 5,000 Wagner mercenaries are fighting alongside Russian forces in Ukraine. Where are they finding so many soldiers? Well, a CNN investigation found that Wagner is recruiting murderers and drug dealers from prisons with a promise that if they survive the war in Ukraine, they will be granted shorter sentences, or even amnesty. Now, these aren't former soldiers who happen to be imprisoned. They are men who are hardened, brutal criminals. This is what one prisoner told CNN's Nick Payton Walsh. If it's real, then I'm all for it. It's either be in prison for nine years or get out in six months if you are lucky. But that's if you are lucky. Prigozhin himself recently did something that would have once seemed unfathomable. According to U.S. officials, Prigozhin directly confronted Vladimir Putin about his belief that Russian generals are mismanaging the war in Ukraine and that more aggressive tactics, more aggressive tactics, need to be used. I want to bring in CNN's chief international correspondent, Clarissa Ward, in Kyiv, Ukraine. Uh, Clarissa, Prigozhin has really used the chaos of this war as a way to bolster his own standing and power within Russia. That's right. I mean, no one could have predicted, Jake, that we would be seeing this moment now. How much has changed? Just a year ago, Wagner didn't officially even exist. Now uh, you see Yevgeny Prigozhin coming out publicly, making statements, criticizing Russia's Ministry of Defense, recruiting prisoners, openly talking about his role in the uh, so-called troll factory uh, back in the 2016 election. So this is a very different Yevgeny Prigozhin than anyone is used to seeing. And I think there is a lot of anxiety, depending on who you're talking to, about what this portends. 
Is this a serious power play? Is he becoming more powerful? And what does that mean going forward in terms of some of the very brutal tactics that you just uh, elucidated in your monologue there? What does that mean going forward in terms of will these become uh, kind of more officially accepted standards of, of Russian comportment on the battlefield, Jake? Yeah, I don't know if it's becoming more powerful or, or more shameless, but either, either way, something's changing. And ultimately, beyond the palace intrigue, what matters here is how the influence of someone like Prigozhin will, will be felt by the people, the innocent suffering people of Ukraine. Well, the Ukrainians are used to Wagner, in a sense, if one can say that. They have been dealing with this group since back in 2014. Wagner are implicated in a number of war crimes here. German intelligence has said that they believe uh, they were involved in the killings of civilians in Bucha, that suburb of Kiev. Obviously, no one can forget those sorts of images. And they are heavily involved in the fighting that is taking place in eastern Ukraine right now. We have seen, interestingly, a group of Ukrainians coming together in the UK and hiring a, a law firm to try to push for Wagner to be prescribed as a terrorist organization and for there to be much heavier checks and balances in terms of their funding. Now, it's not clear that that would have any real impact on the operations of the group because there's no indication that they have any funding coming out of the United Kingdom. But it does potentially open the way for some kind of accountability because what Jake they have been able to do for so long is operate in the shadows because they don't officially exist. Right. Because in the Russian constitution, a private mercenary group is not even a legal and valid organization. So him openly talking about the fact that he is the head of Wagner and that they are uh, directly implicated in these things could potentially open some sort of a route for increased accountability, Jake. Clarissa, stay with us because we're going to bring uh, your special look this heartbreaking investigation uh, you just did uh, firsthand in southern Ukraine. Uh, Clarissa went door to door with investigators in a region where the Russians uh, were recently forced out. Uh, we'll bring you her amazing and tragic story. That's next. As fears continue to grow throughout the globe of Russians potentially deploying a nuclear weapon, there are crimes happening right now on the ground in Ukraine committed by the Russians that are not hypothetical. In the village of Kherson, Russian occupation may be over, but the wounds inflicted by Russian soldiers on innocent Ukrainian civilians could last forever. CNN's Clarissa Ward joins a team of Ukrainian investigators who are going door-to-door -door looking for evidence of Russian war crimes, specifically cases of rape, and other acts of sexual violence. Day after day, they go house to house. A team of investigators dispatched from the capital. These men are tasked with looking for cases of sexual violence. No one was assaulted in this village, these women tell them, but every home has suffered. When Russian forces were pushed out of this area earlier this month, they left a trail of misery behind them. Down the road, an elderly woman, inconsolable, asked for help. I don't know where to sleep now. There are no windows or doors, she tells the policeman. Vera. 
71-year-old Vera Alexeyevna's son was injured fighting on the front lines. She is alone and afraid. Okay. She wants to invite us in to see how she's living. This is what remains of her home. Only her precious icons are untouched. Oh my God, oh God's mother, she says. Please keep my son alive and let me see him again. In town after town throughout the Kherson region, this is what victory looks like, and it is grim. Almost every house has been destroyed by heavy fighting and the people scarred by months of Russian occupation. In the next village, the investigators talk to 56-year-old Tatiana. We have agreed not to name the village or show her face to protect her identity. She takes us to her brother's house, where she says she was raped by a Russian soldier on August 26. He pinned me against the wardrobe and groped me. He ripped my clothes off, and I was caught in his grip. It was very hard and painful for me. I was crying, begging him to stop, but with no success. And did he say anything when it was over? Do not tell anyone anything or it will be worse. That's everything he told me. And then he left. It's very hard for me. Did you tell your husband what had happened? I didn't tell my husband right away, but I told my cousin, and my husband overheard. He said, you should have told me the truth, but you kept silent. I was very ashamed. Very. The shame is on him. He's probably not ashamed, if he's still alive. I wish that he and all his kin were dead. It's coming to the end of a long and emotional day. The men visit the last village on their list. Tomorrow they will head back to Kiev to submit their findings. They've recorded six allegations of rape in their two weeks here. It must be a hard job. It is psychologically difficult. You understand every victim is so distressed, Alexander Svidro says, but this is important work. Most cases, they say, go unreported. Like so many of the horrors that took place under Russian occupation here, they remain hidden in the dark. Now, the Russian Ministry of Defense has repeatedly denied any sort of systematic claims of, of rape that have been taking place with its soldiers on the ground. But one interesting thing uh, that we found, Jake, when we asked Tatiana what she did after the rape, whether she spoke to anyone about it, she did say that she went to the Russian commander in the town three days after it happened and reported the officer who had raped her. And she said that his response was to come and see her a couple of days later and say that he had punched the man in question in the jaw and would she like to have him shot 
To which she replied to him, I would like to see all of you shot, Jake. You said, uh, Clarissa, that these investigators that you were traveling with, that they're headed back to Kiev to report their findings, um, six instances of, of rape. Is there any hope anyone will actually be held accountable? I mean, there's no question, Jake. This is a long uphill battle, and it's going to take a lot of time. Part of the challenge that they face is that it's quite difficult often to identify uh, these Russian soldiers, to get their full names. Now, Tatiana was able to do that, but there are so many other cases where people don't either know the full name or they don't want to talk about it. But the way the Ukrainian authorities see this and the police and the prosecutor's office who are working towards, uh, you know, ultimately towards getting some accountability is that they have to start building a case. You have to start from somewhere. So they'll come back here to Kiev or they're now back here in Kiev. They will put together what they have and they will see whether they can start initiating any criminal proceedings. In more than 40 cases of, of sexual violence at the hands of Russian forces across the country in areas that have been occupied, they have already initiated criminal proceedings. But as I said before, Jake, you know, this is a long slog and it's not going to happen overnight, but it is still so important to, to get the details, to document it with the hopes that one day there will be justice for these women. This village has been through so, so many horrible atrocities. Do they hope that the, the worst is behind them? Is there any possibility that that's it? Or are they afraid that the Russians will return? <sighs> I mean, I think that, you know, what's so tragic when you spend time in these villages and, and you're sort of hoping that people will be kind of jubilant that Ukrainian forces have, have been able to take some of this territory back. But the reality is they're now returning to their homes because many of them obviously had left to find their lives have been completely shattered, Jake. I mean, you look at that woman, Vera, in her 70s, sleeping on a bed with a hole in the roof and absolute sort of carnage all around her and debris and no heat and no electricity and no water and no basic services. And, you know, we were left with the feeling of like, how is she going to survive? How can she possibly actually continue to live here? And I think for so many people, surviving is just the first challenge. And now it's sort of trying to even fathom how you rebuild when a war is still raging, Jake. Yeah. And the Russians continue to destroy infrastructure and the winter is coming. Clarissa Ward in Ukraine, thank you for that powerful report. Appreciate it. As head of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, my next guest's job is to help Democrats protect their House majority. Things aren't looking so good for them six days out. Even he's at risk of losing his seat in a blue district in New York. So why does Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney think he's in the position he's in now? And why is his party? Also ahead, one and only late night legend Jimmy Kimmel is here for a one-on-one -on -one you don't want to miss. Stay with us. democracy under attack because the defeated former president of the United States refuses to accept the results of the 2020 election. It's estimated that there are more than 300 election deniers on the ballot all across America this year. Make no mistake, democracy is in the ballot for all of us. 
President Biden issuing this warning near the U.S. Capitol uh, this evening. Biden hoping that voters will cast their ballots with defending democracy in mind. The reality is, with six days to go, that's not where voters' heads seem to be. The latest CNN polling showing that the economy and inflation far outrank any other issue in voters' minds. 51% say it's a top issue. Abortion comes in second at 15%. For people voting on the economy, the numbers show they trust Republicans more to handle the issue. And it's translating to this, the majority of voters favoring Republicans to take the House. The shifting winds mean that the congressman in charge of protecting the Democratic majority in the House is at risk of losing his own district. That man is Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney of New York. Congressman Maloney, thanks so much for joining us. So back in 2020, President Biden won your district, the Hudson Valley area of New York, by 10 percentage points. Yet at a recent campaign event, your constituents seem to express concerns not just about Democratic races nationwide, but your own seat in deep blue New York. How did the campaign arm that you oversee, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee or the DCCC, get into this position where you're defending so many seats that I would think would be strong Democratic districts? Well, let's uh, let's calibrate that a little bit. We've always had competitive seats in the Hudson Valley. I had to beat a Republican to come to Congress uh, it's not a surprise to me that this is a competitive part of the world. Uh, and so we're going to do what we always do, go out and make our case uh, based on a record of getting real results. Um, and we've always known this was going to be a competitive cycle. My goodness, it's the first midterm of a new presidency. Uh, but we're going to go out and we're going to win these seats. and We're going to hold this majority because there's a lot at stake. I don't know anyone who thinks you're going to hold the majority, with all due respect. Uh, I'm seeing reports and hearing from Democratic pollsters that there's going to be uh, Republicans are going to pick up at least 25 seats. Well, let's see what happens. If we were sitting here two years ago, you would have said Democrats would pick up 25 seats and the Republicans won 13. That was the last time the conventional wisdom was spectacularly wrong. And of course, Everybody got it wrong on 2016's results as well. So I think we could all be a little bit humble. My goodness, we're five days out. What I can tell you is our frontliners have a record of lowering gas and grocery prices, of, of giving people cheaper health care and cheaper housing, of making your streets safer, of supporting good policing and protecting your freedoms, whether we're talking about your reproductive freedoms or your voting rights. And that record is keeping them very much in the fight. And in the toughest races right now, you still see the Republicans spending a fortune. So if it's so lopsided, why are they still spending in the races that should be easiest for them? They have not closed the deal on this election. Do not count us out. Uh, We're going to do better than people think. I I don't know about that. It seems like Democrats are really playing defense. You have Biden going to California, First Lady Biden going to Rhode Island, the vice president going to Connecticut. I mean, these are parts of the country uh, where Democrats normally, uh, you know, have have comfortable leads. But let's focus on your race right now against Republican challenger Michael Lawler. Over the last week, uh, the DCCC spent big to defend you, uh, more than $600,000 for on-air ads on top of $110,000 that another outside group recently spent to support you. How worried are you about your chances on Tuesday? Right. Well, uh, spent big. So $600,000. Let's remember that Republican groups have spent 10 million trying to beat me. So of course, we're going to defend the seat. And what I'm telling you is I'm going to win this race. And those Republicans are going to wish they had that $10 million back to go use it in races they might have won. I think they're going to look pretty foolish. 
But look, again, I've got to go out and earn it two years at a time. I mean, it's always been a competitive seat for me. That's nothing new. And, and, I, and I don't know why anybody's surprised that we have to play a little defense in the first, uh, in the first midterm of a new presidency with a war in Europe and, and all the damage done by the Trump years and the pandemic. We haven't fixed all the problems yet, but the difference is, is that we've got a plan for your future, and the other team has a ploy and a trick to try to win power for themselves. And, and if you can tell me what their plans are for the future, I'd sure love to hear them. I have to ask you about something you said earlier this week. Let's roll that soundbite. Let's not, let's, not, let's not pretend for a minute that both sides have the same, the same amount of accountability for, for the loss of confidence in our elections. One side has been out there for a couple of years now doing everything they can to pretend Joe Biden didn't win fair and square. The thing is, Democrats writ large have spent $53 million supporting far-right candidates, election deniers in the primaries, including the DCCC. By amplifying these election deniers, aren't you holding responsibility to a degree for the undermining of democracy that you're also warning about? Oh, my God. Uh, Jake, let's let's be really clear. What that question you just played was about was who's questioning the outcome of elections. And that started with Donald Trump. And we all know it. And, and let's be clear that fifty three million dollars. Look, it's four hundred thousand dollars at the DCCC in one race, one where we ran a true general election ad two weeks early, calling John Gibbs an extremist who's too conservative for Western Michigan. Yeah, to boost and him. Hillary Scolton, who's a great candidate, excuse me, is going to beat him like a drum. So if you want to ask the people who spent all that other money, that's great. And let's be clear, not one dime was spent from the DCCC supporting any Republican. It was spent criticizing a Republican for being too extreme, and it is going to result in a, in a pro-choice, strong candidate named Hillary Scolton winning that race. Come on. You guys were boosting John Gibbs, an election denier, a MAGA Republican, so that he would beat Congressman Peter Meyer, uh, who voted to impeach Donald Trump after the Capitol attacks. You thought Gibbs would be easier for your Democratic candidate to beat, so you boosted him. That's, that's the only reason he won that race. Well, you're, you're using that word boost to be kind of cute. Other people say we're kind of funding their campaigns. It's ridiculous. We're attacking them, but we are absolutely right. We thought he was an easier candidate, and he has proven to be because he's a nut, and he's too conservative for Western Michigan, and Hillary Scolton is getting ready to beat him. And that is my focus, is making sure we bring, you know, common sense Democrats to Congress who are going to move our country forward. And let's be clear again. $400,000 out of a $340 million budget. So if you want to warm up these leftovers, we can keep going. But right now we've got, we've got five or six days until we have an, a, an election. And that's, that's where my focus is. And we're going to win that seat in Michigan three. Well, that $400,000 for John Gibbs did boost him and he beat Congressman Peter Meyer, Peter Meyer, who did something uh, braver than I've, than I've seen in terms of most members of Congress, in terms of bucking his party to be one of 10 Republicans to vote to impeach Donald Trump. When people like you say, where are all the good Republicans? You helped defeat one of them. Jake, let's be clear. If, if, if your point is that I should, in some sort of exercise of defeatism, stop trying to beat Republicans in vulnerable seats who are going to vote for Kevin McCarthy and put Jim Jordan at the head of the Judiciary 
committee where they're going to take away your reproductive freedom, pass a national ban on abortion, give you two years of Hunter Biden and nothing else. If your point is that I should roll over, pull a bunch of punches, and I guess make somebody in the media feel better because, because what? Because we hope that some of these Democrats will be nice to us. How about we elect some people who are actually good on issues like choice or gun safety or on supporting leaders who won't who won't support an insurrection. And Peter Meyer was going to vote for the majority that that on January 6th voted to set aside the election. That's a district that Joe Biden won with 56% of the vote, and we're going to win it. And I have said, and I mean it, there are difficult moral and philosophical questions in politics. You better believe it. But let's be really clear. This is $400,000 in a budget of $300 million, one race, one in the entire cycle, where we ran a general election ad that was perfectly true, calling the guy an extremist, and Hillary Scolton's going to win. That's what we're talking about. All right, Congressman Maloney, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, Have a a good rest of your week. I know you're going to be busy. Thank you very much. And when we return, Jimmy Kimmel's here. The Jimmy Kimmel. Trust me, you want to stick around to hear him riff anew on newsmakers such as Elon Musk and Ye, a.k.a. Kanye West. Don't miss it. That's next. So there's been a lot said about Twitter's new owner, billionaire Elon Musk, especially after Mr. Musk tweeted out a link to a deranged right-wing website to further the smearing of Paul Pelosi, the House Speaker's husband, whom a deranged intruder attacked with a hammer last Friday. The website that Elon Musk linked to is so nuts, it reported in 2016 that Hillary Clinton had died and that a body double would debate Donald Trump. The host of Jimmy Kimmel Live on ABC tweeted, after Musk did this, it has been interesting over the years to watch you blossom from the electric car guy into a fully formed piece of shit. And Jimmy Kimmel joins me now. Jimmy, good to see you. Uh, Interesting tweet, strong words. Um, And it does play right into this national conversation we've been having about free speech. How do you see those issues given... You know, free speech on one hand, and yet the dangerous spread of misinformation and hateful rhetoric uh, that's inciting some of these attacks on on the other. Well, first of all, Jake, I love hearing you curse. It's one of my favorite things. I know it only happens like once every... I feel like you did it just for me tonight. I only quote people cursing. I never curse on my own. It's only within quotations. The Trump era gave gave me a lot of opportunities to do that, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like it. It's like CNN after dark. Um, I, you know, I have to say I am not, when I am, uh, when I am the voice of decency, we've got a problem because the idea that this old man, an 82 year old man has been attacked in his bed, in his home by a a person who obviously has some problems and that our first reaction isn't, oh my goodness, even if they're lying, even if they're pretending to have concern, how can that, how can the reaction possibly be, how can we move so quickly to smearing these people, to trying to create some, and you know, by the way, now that the police report is out, I haven't exactly seen Elon Musk or Donald Trump or Donnie Jr. 
correcting them and saying, oh my goodness, now that we read the facts of the story, um, certainly we, we feel terrible that we spread these vicious lies around and we retract them and apologize to the Pelosi family. No, you'll never see that uh, because they'll, that's not how it works. Everybody yeah. is a target all the time now. And it's not just the smears that they put out about Paul Pelosi, these deranged conspiracy theories. A, a lot of these folks, right-wing MAGA folks, uh, tried to make jokes at, at Paul Pelosi's expense. Um, one's largely based on this deranged smear that Paul Pelosi you know, ha- had a relationship with his attacker. Now, you certainly are not afraid of taking risks in comedy. Where's the line? I mean, I personally found those jokes by Don Jr. and others just horrible and, and not even remotely funny. The line is when Don Jr. tells a joke. That's when Don Jr. tells a joke, it's, it's, the line has been crossed because this is not a funny person. Um, I, would, I don't know what's going on in Don's life, but um, it seems like an awful lot of projection going on there to me. And uh, I, I just, you know, I don't know. The line, I guess, is when an 82-year-old man gets hit in the head with a hammer. Yeah, it's a good line. It, this also comes at the same time uh, that Kanye West, now known as Ye, who I know you've interviewed in the past, he, he said he could say anything he wanted anti-Semitic and Adidas couldn't drop him, but Adidas did ultimately drop him. On the other hand, Kyrie Irving, star of the Brooklyn Nets, he's out there flirting with anti-Semitism, continues to play. Uh, how do you think celebrities who spew bigotry, people who have platforms, should be treated? What kind of consequences should there be? I just, you know, it makes me wonder, like, who, who told them this stuff? How did this get into their heads in the first place? I mean, on one side, you could say, maybe we shouldn't take anything that these guys say seriously. I mean, if you see someone ranting and raving on the street corner, you're not necessarily holding them accountable for their words. But on the other hand, these are very specific. I mean, they've singled out... A religious group and decided that all the evils of the world are somehow attached to that group. It's 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 beyond offensive. It's it's actually nonsensical. Yeah. And um, I don't think Kanye West is a stupid person, and I don't think Kyrie. Ir- I mean, Kyrie Irving does think the world is flat, so that should be taken into consideration. But <laughs> he went um, to Duke, though. I mean, you know, I, I mean, he's, some- he's, he's he's pretty smart. Well, I, I mean, he went to Duke. Would he have gone to Duke had he not been a great basketball player? That's for the admissions people at Duke. But it uh, <laughs> might be time to take his diploma back. So, uh, but, and yet at the same time that we're talking about this, you and I have talked about this privately, um, we, this era of so-called cancel culture, um, where careers get ruined yeah. because somebody says something wrong or makes a mistake. Obviously, if they you know, commit a crime, that's a, separ- that's a separate thing. But... I think, and I think you agree with me, that there does need to be room for people to, to apologize as long as it's a sincere apology. I, I saw this report um, today about a, this young sports reporter named Casey Funderburg. Uh, she objected to some racism that she saw uh, as a sports reporter and then passed tweets, racist tweets that she, she had made when she was a teenager uh, emerged and, and she was fired. And, and to me, that seems like, look, if she's... I don't have a people. There needs to be space for people to apologize in this in this world. Yeah, I mean, if there isn't, then then where do we go? I mean, it's it's. I mean, listen. Obviously, I've been involved in. A, I've said a million stupid things, and uh, I would hope that people would 
decide whether an apology is sincere. Um, when a, an apology isn't even offered, that's, I mean, listen, there's, these people are supposed to be Christians. I, I am a Catholic. I grew up uh, in the church. Uh, what I was taught was that if you do something wrong, you ask for forgiveness and you are forgiven for these things. The idea that, um, that it would be anything other than that, that these people who are allegedly following the teachings of Jesus uh, it, it, it would behave in this way, it just, it, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't make any sense at all. And I don't, I just can't understand how that works for so many people, so many Americans. It is it's really not just religious. It's not just people on, it's not just religious people on the right though, right? I mean, there are people, progressives on the left no. that can be pretty tough yes. about this. Absolutely. Uh, just as if not more so. Um, but I do think that there's more openness to forgiveness from that particular side. Yeah, but with that said, people do like piling on. They love it. It makes them feel like they're a better person. There's certainly a lot of that going on. And I tell you what, I've noticed, and this is just my own personal experience, I noticed that in the three days that Elon Musk has been running this Twitter, that it has gotten crazier and nastier. I mean, uh, you know, I'm walking in an ALS walk in Las Vegas on Sunday, uh, on my birthday, November 13th, and uh, I posted about it, and thank you, and um, I just got an avalanche of hate, hate, and it's just like, well, you can't even, uh, you can't do anything anymore without being attacked. It's, it's absolutely crazy. No, I, I, I agree. Um, the midterm elections are approaching. Um, I have to say, whatever you feel about Republicans taking back the House, which seems likely, perhaps as a comedian, you're looking forward to it. I mean, more prominence for people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, <laughs> who you who you like to you like to talk about. She brings you information. She brings you fodder. No, I, 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 I no, I, I don't. I'm not that desperate for material. I'm really not. And I will tell you something also. I have a bone to pick with you because uh -oh. uh, we watch you in my office every day before the show. And then you decide to, all of a sudden, you decide to slide into the night slot. Now, this is when I'm taping the show. It's not convenient for me at all. So I'm very glad to hear that you're moving back to 4 o'clock. And I like to believe that you did it specifically for me. I, I did it because of my family. And it was always just a, a, a short-term gig yeah, for, but for, that, for, for, a, uh, a for little bit the for midterms. <laughs> if you want to tell yourself that. 40% for me. 140. I mean, 4 in the middle of the night, and I went downstairs. Tradition you started, and I ate getting parents to pretend candy. that they ate their kids' Halloween candy and then they record the sad reaction on I video. You twisted time. man. We're gonna be right back with that. Stay with us. And we're back with Jimmy Kimmel, who takes a perverse pleasure in torturing America's children at this time of year, Halloween. So oh, oh, one last thing. So uh, tonight on your show, uh, I want to show a, a, a clip from this year's uh, kid uh, candy prank uh, that, you, that you do every year. Um, let, let's show that if we can. In the middle of the night, and I went downstairs, and I ate all of your Halloween candy. I thought you were on a diet. You know who told me to do it? Jimmy Kimmel. Is he a bad guy? Mm-hmm. 
Papa ate it. He didn't get diarrhea. <laughs> he didn't get diarrhea. So that was from last year's, actually. So this is the meanest thing that I, I, I tell you this every year. It's the meanest thing in the world. You, t- you get these parents to tell their kids that the candy's gone. Uh, you play these videos. Look, when they, the kid says, like, I hope dad gets diarrhea, that's one thing. But the, often they just weep. Often they weep. Have you ever said, no, I can't do this anymore. I can't, I can't do it. It's just too harsh. Let me just tell you where I'm coming from, Jake. First of all, kids cry like 15 or 18 times a day. So it's not, it's not like when you make an adult cry that it happens once every eight months. And secondly, when I was a kid, my mom used to lay on the ground and pretend she was dead <laughs> until we cried. Okay? So the way I see it, these kids are getting off easy. <laughs> but that's sick. That's not, that's not a justification. That's a justification for you to be institutionalized, but it's not this sickness that you, well, anyway, I know that you have a lot of fans who love it. Say so what I'm, you, <laughs> America wants it. Even when we stopped doing it, they kept doing it. So we, you know what, we gave in. Jimmy Kimmel, always good to see you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jake. Thanks for coming back on at four. <laughs> and we'll me. be right back. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. Tomorrow, Republican senator and possible presidential candidate Tom Cotton of Arkansas will join us as we look at the midterms. Now just stays away. That's tomorrow night at 9 Eastern. Our coverage continues now with luminous Laura Coates and hmm, at, uh, astrological Allison Camerata. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.